0: Star Wars 7x7, episode 527. Today, it's a bonus extended episode for your Sunday. We are interviewing Dr. Travis Langley, the editor and lead contributor to Star Wars Psychology, Dark Side of the Mind. Punch it, Chewie. Hey there, this is Tim McMahon, Helen's co-host from the Expanded Comic-Verse Podcast. But hey, you're listening to Star Wars 7x7, a daily Star Wars podcast, seven minutes a day, seven days a week,
1: How awesome is that?
0: Hey Rebel Rouser, welcome to Star Wars 7x7. I'm your host, Alan Voivod, and let me tell you, I was absolutely thrilled to get a message the other day, actually, (laughs) I'm saying the other day, but it was a couple months ago, quite honestly, from folks representing Dr. Travis Langley, who's the editor of Star Wars Psychology Dark Side of the Mind, asking if we would be interested in having him on the show, and one thing that you may not know about me, and uh, I don't really talk about it with a lot of people, but you know, who wants to hear what you <laughs> went through college for? Anyway, my degrees are in psychology and sociology, actually, so anything that's uh, psychology-related, I was like, hmm, this could be interesting, and thought, well, this ought to be worth uh, having a look at. So I got a copy of the book and started going through it, and we'll tell you more about that later on in the show. But in the meantime, they arranged for me to have a freewheeling interview with Dr. Langley. The uh, press folks sent a list of questions that Dr. Langley could perhaps talk about, and I freely ignored those (laughs) and went off on my own tangents with Dr. Langley. And we had a few good laughs, I must say. I mean, you don't necessarily think of talking to a psychologist as a being a funny operation but no this is a, a guy who has been deeply immersed in the star wars universe he has appeared at numerous comic cons on panels and whatnot so you're going to enjoy this as much as i did i think if not more so so without further ado here's my conversation with dr timothy langley editor and lead contributor to star wars psychology dark side of the mind dr travis langley thank you so much for joining us on the star wars 7 by 7 podcast
1: oh thank you for having me
0: now your book, Star Wars Psychology, is is it subtitled essentially Dark Side of the Mind or is that that maybe its main title? Um, I know,
1: it drives me crazy the way they put the subtitle above the title on the cover. The the subtitle is Dark Side of the Mind. They have promised that from Game of Thrones on, the subtitle will be at the bottom. So for that one down at the bottom, it'll say the mind is dark and full of terrors. But for these first two, uh, Walking Dead Psychology, Psych of the Living Dead is positioned above the title and likewise with the Star Wars book. (laughs) So it is Star Wars Psychology, Dark Side of the Mind. Got it. (laughs) That's how you will find it online at Barnes & Noble or Amazon or any of those. But on the cover, it looks the other way around.
0: And thank you so much for sneak uh, previewing the fact that there's going to be a Game of Thrones psychology book. That's awesome. Uh,
1: It it just seemed like it was the obvious follow-up to me. The, The time, the popularity, and the fact that I know... Uh, the people contributing chapters and i would have plenty of good things to say i I do realize somebody could look at the kind of stuff we're doing books on and say you're doing that stuff and then there's what star trek next summer and later in the year a guy with a blue box who travels through time and (laughs) somebody could hear those topics and think oh you're just doing this stuff because it's popular no the fact that it's popular is why a publisher lets us talk about these things right exactly (laughs) But, um, there could be there there i mean there would be topics that we would have plenty to say about, but as like we don't think the publisher would uh, you feel as confident about them so it's it's this this mix of marriage of interest between us, what we want to talk about, what we think what is interesting to us, and what we think we can bring some legitimate psychology into, and then what you know will work for a publisher and the reading audience right,
0: so does that mean that you will not be self publishing an analysis of h r. puffin stuff not yet <laughs> no um but let 's talk about dark side of the mind <laughs> because um the tit- the subtitle the title I should correct myself the subtitle it 's it 's an interesting selection because in the book you talk about how star wars fans who might look just sort of at the surface of Star Wars and the stories that Star Wars tells and the characters within it might see a dichotomy of of character that people are only good or evil they 're only light side or dark side, and the fact of the matter is is that the, the heroes are actually winning because they see a deeper uh, and more complex environment around them and, and environment within the characters that are around them. And I think for the casual reader and the casual fan, looking at a book subtitled Dark Side of the Mind might give people the idea that you are leaning toward one end of the dichotomy but that's really not the case and i was hoping that you could explain a little bit more about the jungian inspiration behind the title
1: yeah well the jungian psychology is important because it it influenced psychology it, it, it it influenced Star Wars itself. When George Lucas was developing his original story, as many fans know, mm-hmm. he had a lot of influence Kurosawa films, cowboy stories, but he was having trouble finishing his earliest story, you know, back in 73, 74, until he discovered the works of Joseph Joseph Campbell, and through that Jungian archetypes and the hero's journey, you know, this idea that there's this underlying heroic story that's represented in thousands of different heroic stories throughout the world and lucas sees this and goes that's the kind of story i was telling and didn't even realize it And then he deliberately wove the archetypes and that hero's journey into the story and so there's a very much a jungian aspect to what's going on we're not all jungians we do have a couple of jungians contributing chapters and then others of us are looking at it you know in different ways but that is an important aspect so that subtitle, Dark Side of the Mind, well, it sounds like, oh, that's just about uh, you know the dark side of the Force. Right. No, no. What Jung means is something a little different. Um, and, and the layers of meaning there are kind of like the layers of what's going on in Star Wars itself. It occurs to me as I'm saying this. Uh, the title refers to how the, the hidden side of human nature, you know, the part of you that is not out in the light – That's the dark side of the mind. That's what Jung meant by the dark side. And he said, all right, it's not necessarily your worst qualities. It's not necessarily evil at all. It can be your best qualities that you need to bring out into the light that you need to discover and, and reveal and figure out how to work with you know luke skywalker he sees in darth vader that beyond that dark exterior just like beyond our our how our dark side of the mind subtitle sounds there is light within that there is something else going on something deeper in that individual that could be brought forward so yeah, you know, we are talking about you know, the unrevealed part of the mind, the unexplored, and let's explore all this stuff.
0: Right, and there's sort of a delicious irony then there that Lucas, in writing this story, was tapping into the collective unconscious without realizing that he was doing it, and it ended up being sort of the key to him completing and launching this whole franchise enterprise.
1: And, and even if even if you're not viewing, you know, the Jung's ideas as as a, a Universal, collective, unconscious. Not everybody agrees with him on that. But there are these themes that are throughout the entire world. Maybe they manifest just as a consequence of how life works. Maybe it is something that's inherited in us. Regardless of which, these themes resonate in people all over the world. And Lucas had started off being influenced by the many things, whether conscious, unconscious, experience in his life, inherited. These things were shaping him but he wasn't quite there until he discovered the formula and wove it in in a way that now other people have been copying him in in what he started doing then.
0: Right, exactly. And it has become a worldwide phenomenon. And the idea of this explosion of pop culture and people copying that sort of formula uh, has taken over our society, I would say. And In your case in particular, I guess, you are um, looking at the psychology of pop culture. This is what um, you've sort of arrived at. And I would love to know a little bit about your own professional journey. Um, How did you end up arriving at this particular niche within psychology? Uh,
1: In 2007, I went to San Diego Comic-Con. (laughs) <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I mean, it's that specific. That summer, a lot of things came together for me. It used to be the nerdy side of my life, the professor side of my life were two different things, uh, but I, I met comic scholars at Comic-Con that summer. And I was reading a book by Danny Fingeroth, Superman on the Couch, about how in the 50 years after a psychiatrist, Frederick Wortham, damaged the comic book industry, almost nobody in any related area had written about comic books or specifically superheroes. And so that comment of Danny's was in my head. I was teaching a psychology of literature course using fiction to talk about real psychology when I met the other – scholars in these areas, and I knew I, I need to, to, to write in this area too. I need to write about these nervy, nerdy topics. You know, I need to write a journal article about Batman. By the following summer, I need to write a book about Batman. But I wanted Star Wars to be the second book. I, I did. It's like when Batman and Psychology was immediately doing well, I wanted to do Star Wars, and the publisher of that was like, well, there's no new movie! I was like, well, Star Wars always sells! Come on! Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> last fall... I ran into my old editor at New York Comic Con uh, two minutes after I mentioned her to a friend, and I said, you remember that Star Wars book I want to do? It is time, and we agreed in the hall. We wanted to work together, and within two weeks, she had people throughout her publishing house excited about the idea for the Star Wars proposal and the series proposal I had with it where I used Walking Dead as the main example. They said, you want to do them both? Now, I'm not writing these new books on by myself, or right? I might not have been quite so quick right. to say yes. <laughs> um, I've, over the last few years, I've gotten to know other nerdy psychologists and counselors who, who love these topics, and they know their psychology. A lot of my writers, I, I've gotten to know through conventions. We've done convention panels together, so I know they know how to talk about this stuff for a general audience. That's critical for me. I'm not writing to impress the scholars. I'm writing to help you know the general audience, people throughout the world if they're open to it i know i hear from people in australia so they're all over the place right uh that uh, you know there's more to psychology and more to the fiction than they realized and then the other part of the writers uh i met th- th- met uh through uh blogs online especially psychology today blogs so that i know what they say they i know how they write and when they're doing blogging, I also know they know how to do it quickly because we stay on kind of a tight schedule on these books, even though I'd had several years of planning with the Star Wars psychology. And I told my writers, it's like, okay, that this is what I want to do. I'm, I'm out there pitching it, you know, so be ready, because when the time comes, we might have to do it very quickly. Right. Uh, but we've had years to think about these things. Really, you get down to it, we've been thinking about these all our lives.
0: Right, exactly. And from what I gather... Even though you did the Batman book first and you did you know, The Walking Dead, um, it sounds like concurrently, if I'm not mistaken, the Star Wars one, that's been living within you for quite a while. I mean, you yeah. talk about having planned the book. For years. Um, at what level did you have it planned before you ran into your editor two minutes after mentioning her to somebody, which if we're going to get Jungian again, that's synchronicity, I think, at work right
1: there. Oh, that's, a, that's the right word. Uh, I had, Well, I, I had a proposal written and prepared and, and uh, samples of It's like, here's a structure we could follow. So I had it. That structure developed pretty well, and and the kind of things, the kind of psychology we could get in, and how we could pair them with different characters. So I had the proposal ready uh, when I ran into her. I had the series proposal ready. I barely had to tweak them, you know, to to tailor them to her specific publisher. I barely had to change anything because I had within the weeks right before that I had, like I said, these had been with me a long time i had prepared a draft of a star wars psychology proposal four years earlier mm-hmm. and i had done the revision of it right before i crossed paths with her
0: and when you say you'd had it you know laid out was it in terms of the um the way that the book is broken down now with uh you know subdivided into tales and kinds and journeys and paths and awakenings or how do, how do you mean
1: Part well, yeah, to a degree. Uh, some of those are going to end up changing depending on what the chapters produced come out looking like. You know, oh, you know the, the journey section was absolutely; it always had to be there. You have to have something where you talk about the hero's journey right. and related issues. You get, you've got to have something jung related in a Star Wars psychology book. You know, and you know, you've got to get in the kinds section. Although I went through a number of things on what to call it, uh, but, but you, where you get into the issues of diversity, uh, where you you see characters of these various races especially the droids sentient beings who are treated as equipment and and gender gender issues which you can go it's like man there aren't a lot of women in these movies outside leia and her mom that's true and that is a gender issue in and of itself but leia's own growth her journey who is she and what was her mother like you know so yeah, i knew those had to be there some of the rest is like after you I know there's definitely a book. Then I recruit the other half of the writers, and they'll have their own ideas. And they may or may not fit quite the vision that I had. So the vision adapts. The vision grows. And, and so some of it changes along the way. As they, some of it, not until I receive the chapters do I start looking at it and thinking, how do they fit? I, I had index cards. I had a table covered with index cards, <laughs> one for every chapter. And I just kept rearranging until it finally felt, okay, here's the natural flow. And, and I did that with the proposal itself, and then when I actually had the chapters, I had a new version of that, one index card representing every chapter, and I kept arranging until I felt like that is the natural flow from what we've got. And then I do a lot of writing. I do most of my writing, even though I generally know the things I want to talk about, I do most of my writing after I get the chapters from the contributors so that I can help you know, tie it together, not repeat some of the things they're saying. And I, I, I love the process of the writing and the editing.
0: Got it. So then the, um, the acronym for OCEAN, that goes mm-hmm. throughout the book where you talk about, you know, the five different elements of, and uh, I need to pull it up now in front of me naturally. Um, but actually, you can probably tell me right off the top of your head what OCEAN stands for.
1: Well, it refers to the big five personality factors, these five yes. groups of traits. Uh, like, for example, one of the best-known ones would be uh, uh, introversion or its opposite, extroversion, mm-hmm. which also originates with Carl Jung. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, uh, but that's probably the best-known personality factor. Extroversion is not just one trait; it's a whole group of traits that tend to go together. You know, being outgoing and being more externally focused, and you know, being less anxious and so forth. You know, th- these things go together as a group. A different kind of anxiety than we see in the neurotic one. So it's you know, openness. You know, openness to new experience, openness to trying new things, thinking new things. It's open-mindedness in a way. Uh, conscientiousness, uh, attention to details. You could be too conscientious, but you can certainly be too reckless at the other extreme. You know, OCE, extraversion, or it's opposite introversion. A is for agreeableness, uh, the person who's motivated to get along with others, or it's opposite disagreeableness, and with that one, for example, I used, uh, I used Lando Calrissian as part of the example on this, because he goes to a lot of effort. Oh, let's get along with the Empire, along with these people that I'm running in Cloud City. Oh, it's not working out with the Empire. I'm going to go get along with the Rebels now. He's very motivated by that. Some people will use that as synonymous for likability, but I'll point out no, Jar Jar Binks is also very motivated to get along with everybody, and likable is not the word most people use to describe Jar Jar. <laughs> And then the end is neuroticism. You know, the opposite of which would be emotional stability. Being emotionally unstable is the neurotic end of that. You know, being a, a bundle of chaotic emotions would be very neurotic. And one of the most neurotic characters in all of the Star Wars films is Anakin himself.
0: So, did the ocean framework then occur to you to um, to intersperse throughout the book as you started seeing the contributions come in, or was that something that you
1: had been thinking about for a while? No, I want new I knew I knew I wanted to do that one mm-hmm. with some of the other books we 're working on. I decide afterwards like one of the upcoming books. I was going to use this one particular personality this these types of intelligence as the model throughout the book, but then one of my writers talked about those same types of intelligence as i i 'm going to use something else throughout that book <laughs> and um But so it varies with Star Wars. I knew a long time ago that I wanted to talk about you know an ocean long ago and far away.
0: Yeah. So, in talking about um, Jung and Campbell, and yeah, and as you said, there may be some disagreement about Jungian psychology, and not everybody you know leans in that direction. But there's a point at which I guess you can look at this and say it's deconstructive to the point where it's almost hard to tell whether the information and the conclusions and the uh, points for discussion that we're looking at in this book are actually there versus whether we are projecting them onto the films themselves and I'd love to hear your take on that like is is it really there to be found or are we able to project on it um, for it and are we able to project on it because it is such an incredible piece of art
1: I, I know this is going to sound a little bit like a cop out, but the answer has to be all of the above. <laughs> you know, there is Lucas deliberately wove certain types of psychology in. He had a sense of people. There are things going on with these, but then there's also where we are projecting our own thoughts and ideas. You know, onto these things. You know, where you know you've got a certain thing you're inclined to see in characters. You're inclined to see P A PTSD. You're going to go diagnosing characters all over the place with that. You know. Some therapists, they're particularly inclined towards certain diagnoses. Mm-hmm. And so then you know, it's an amazing number of clients who have that diagnosis. But then again, you know, the therapist who's really good with dealing with a certain diagnosis, more people with that diagnosis will get referred to that therapist. So it, it works in every direction on this stuff.
0: Yeah, it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy
1: in and, a way. And for, and for us, as we're using this stuff to talk about real psychology – it, it doesn't matter which it is. It's like we're still talking about real psychology using these examples, whether it was intended to be there or not. Lucas doesn't even necessarily know what he intended sometimes, <laughs> you know, and he's, he contradicts himself. He's a human being. We all contradict ourselves, although the things he says get you know, stuck in print forever. Right. Uh, we use this to talk about the real side. We are approaching this as fans. I will have some people say, "Well, well, I think this character really such and such." Just like it's fiction, there is no really to it.
0: Yeah. All right. So, and you mentioned. Um, Lucas, um, thinking, you know, with him it's going to be stuck in print. And I have to say, of course, unless another special edition comes out, which actually (laughs) leads me to a question I would love to uh, bend your ear on, and it's the the one that fans complain about the most, the change from having Han shoot first to Greedo shooting first. There's a certain psychology of this, and actually Lucas talked about it recently and said... You know, Han's going to eventually have a journey to become a, a, a hero and a family man mm-hmm. and this, that, and the other. And do you want him to be the person that shoots first? No, you have to actually have Greedo shoot first because that's the kind of person Han is going to become. What do you think about that? That's less
1: of a journey. It's mm-hmm. more of a journey if Han shoots first. Yep. It's for for those of us who saw Star Wars as it was originally released or even you know a little later before the special edition, you know, because it got tweaked a few times before the special edition. Oh yeah, he he shoots first. We see him shoot first, and this is how we got to know the character. This is the first really concrete detail established about the character. We see him bragging about his ship, but we don't to to Luke. But we don't know if it's good ship or not. Is he just bragging? It's uncertain. The first definite thing we see is when he shoots Greedo. We know he blew that guy away. Right, And and that became the foundation upon which we built the rest of our idea of Han Solo. And so we don't give that idea up very easily. Now, him going from the guy who shoots first to the family man later on, that's a bigger journey than him being the guy who shoots second. It, it's much further to go when he was – and within A New Hope itself. The guy who shoots first, it's harder to believe he's going to show up out of the blue. He shoots f- he shoots first. He repeatedly says he'll never stick his neck out for anybody. All he wants is money. But then he's kind of hurt when Luke you know, says he just you know, there for the money. And he <laughs> shows up. And, I got your back! And we see at the start of Empire, he charges off into the snow even though he's told he can't survive out there. And it's like he, he doesn't matter. It, to what looks like likely doom, he's going to risk his life for the sake of of a friend and we, we see a, a great journey there. And it's so much more of a journey. If he's the guy who shot first.
0: Amen. Amen. <laughs> I love it. Thank you very much for, I think you've definitively answered that as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I, I think the prequels show that Lucas doesn't completely understand his own formula.
0: Well, there's, there's a, a theory that's been put out. Um, have you heard of the star Wars ring theory?
1: I have, but there's so many theories. Which one is that?
0: Oh, yeah, that's all right. Um, and, yeah, there's ones that I'm not aware of either. It's one that I'm I'm comparatively new to. But um, a gentleman named Mike Klimo has written a very long and exhaustive uh, treatise about how – Lucas is constructing the stories of the prequels to echo the original trilogy in very specific and very minute detail, and creating a chiasmus where it's just all like, um, like the snake that uh, circles around to eat its own tail, where all of yeah, these- you're,
1: you're following some aspects of the structure mm-hmm. without. Hitting the emotional notes, right? It's 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 you you, you see that in huh, you see that in the movie Batman ampersand Robin, <laughs> where where Schumacher follows a lot of the structure of Batman Forever, which was a successful film, even if people you know don't like it retroactively as much as the Burton films. It was a successful film. It wasn't the mess that Batman ampersand Robin was, right? Because he's following a lot of the same structure without it being a story that flows it's so it's constructed so artificially with those prequels that with instead of flowing a bit more naturally
0: yeah that's what I fear about it that it was that structure and trying to make sure that you hit certain story beats that mm-hmm. it lost sort of the The flexibility and it lost the improvisational nature that Star Wars had to it. Even for something that was as finely structured from a hero's journey standpoint and from mining all these union psychology tenants and so forth, like there is still an improvisational and collaborative nature Mm -hmm. to the original trilogy that doesn't seem to exist. And I know, of course, that, you know, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people who contributed to the artistic creation of the prequels and yet it's not the same. It is absolutely not the same at all.
1: Yeah, I have friends who worked on those prequels that, uh, you know, if you ask, oh, what have you worked on? They'll start with other films, if they're talking to a stranger, without necessarily getting to the Star Wars prequels right away, because I think they're really tired of that just inspiring people to start griping up about the prequels. It's like, man, I didn't make those prequels. It was probably how they're feeling. Right. You know, I didn't design it. I didn't you know, decide what the story was. Uh, you know, I, I've got friends who worked in special effects in those, and they don't announce it right away,
0: mm-hmm. and that is a shame because I mean yeah. they, you know, all of those people did incredibly brilliant work. I mean that can't be disputed whatsoever.
1: And there are there are a lot of good things in there. Mm-hmm. There there there's excellent production design, obviously a bit more CGI than I'd have cared for. But uh, there, there are good things in there. There are good lines, good dialogue, you know, certain things you look at structurally. And, but there's an awful lot of stuff that's missing, especially for those of us who had been waiting for a really long time mm-hmm. to see what was the journey for the good man to become the villain. And you don't ever exactly see Anakin as a good man. You don't get that opportunity. You see him as a good kid. Mm-hmm. You see him as a good kid, but you don't see him as a good man. And and you needed to see the good man who, you know, like summon power from the dark side to save someone in a desperate moment or some mistake like that. And that's not what we see. We see Palpatine just manipulating him step by step like Iago out of the play Othello.
0: And yet there would have been opportunity for Palpatine to continue to be manipulative and for Anakin to still have his good man um um movie, which I guess would be attack of the Clones should have been his good man movie, but to have yeah. that moment where he calls on the powers of the dark side to and makes that crossover and it could be uh-huh. thanks to you know the help of a manipulation from Palpatine
1: yeah. episode two he's grown he's already reckless, he's already full of ego, and you know he, he's he's heading there It's like well, how did he get there? We still missed the point at which he was getting there.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Maybe we needed a fourth prequel movie. Oh, Lord, no.
1: <laughs> now, there's at least one prequel movie too many. Plenty of people would say three too many. Well, yeah, I suppose. You that's don't true. need Phantom Menace. You just don't need Phantom Menace. So, um, would you be a proponent of the uh, the Machete Order of
0: movies of showing people four, five, two, three, and six?
1: I'm a proponent of watching four, five, six. Okay. <laughs> I I. I don't think you have to watch the prequels. I, there's there's plenty there. It's, you know, cause, I mean, talking about Star Wars, you really want to be in a discussion and talking about the characters and analyzing them and contemplating what would it take. You do need to see them. You do need to know what the journey was. Mm-hmm. It, it, it nagged at me for a long time trying to think, how in the world can that kid, that empathetic kid who cares about people, become Anakin? And then separately, how can Anakin, who's this neurotic mess, become someone who seems as cool as darth vader and and i I, i've i've decided what with anakin some of it you have to compare it to drug addiction uh, or brain injury Mm. well you know a drug addict somebody who had been a good caring kid you know can go in a really dark selfish irresponsible direction when they are addicts okay and if he's a bit getting a bit addicted to some of the darker part of this Force stuff. He's tapping into some of the worst qualities of every living being. If you view him as an addict, his behavior makes more sense. But then the the transition from Anakin to Darth Vader, the difference in their personalities, because we don't see a lot with Darth Vader. We really see less of Darth Vader than a lot of people think. But still, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, tra- the transition from Anakin to Darth Vader, it was really speculating about it, on Twitter a few weeks ago, where I had a thought I wish I'd included in the book, uh, where I finally it was, it was looking at Paul Zare's chapter on uh, the effects of cybernetics on the brain, and I got to thinking about how cybernetic implants you know, will alter our brains, alter who we are. People are going to get memory chips added to their brains. They are gonna get, you know, things added that could alter their own personalities. Let's kind of suppress, you know, the moral side, activate the energetic side, suppress them fear. And you get into Darth Vader's cybernetic implants and what could even be directly in his brain. It's like, okay, now I can start to see someone who will be different. We start putting a bunch of wiring in your head. You will not act the same way once we activate programs and deactivate some stuff in you. So I, I, I think the cybernetics and age, of course, it's been 20-something years in between, and age and experience, You know, some of the chaos that we see in younger individuals, or like somebody with something borderline personality, which some people diagnose Anakin with. I'm not as convinced on, but uh, borderline personality where the – personality type is it's on the border of having a personality they don't have as many stable traits as the rest of us you don't see as much of that when a person gets older um for maybe because they're getting themselves killed off at a greater rate than other people Uh risky behaviors but for some of them it's like okay maybe they're just developing their personality at a slower rate than everybody else and with that with those who give the borderline diagnosis to Anakin, or you look at some other reasons for some chaos. People tend to get less chaotic as they get older, so there's another thing figuring that difference between Anakin and Darth. And you can't think about these things if you haven't seen the prequels. And right. there are people who love the prequels. You know, I, I don't think somebody should you know, really. I don't think somebody should be deprived of the opportunity to see them. But you're going to ask me for my recommendations on the prequels. Is I. Watch the original, especially your kids. Introduce them to the original trilogy. Years mm-hmm. later, when they're grown, let them find out what the rest of those were. Why spoil it? <laughs>
0: uh, I I sometimes say it's like bad pizza. I mean, it's still pizza. Like, it's still <laughs> it.
1: <laughs> But you don't want it to be someone's introduction to pizza.
0: Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, absolutely. Start off with a good, you know, a good Sicilian. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about another couple of concrete examples if you will um, and also related to the force awakens part of the um, part of the book talks about uh, gender equality issues and we are definitely being you know being shown that some of these issues are trying to be addressed very consciously in the development of force awakens and the fact that the movie is centering around um, Daisy Ridley's Ray character. Uh, yeah. Do you have a sense um, based on the stuff that you've seen so far for the force awakens that um, that A, they are consciously swinging the gender equality question in another direction, and B, do you think it's actually effective when it's being addressed in such a blatant manner?
1: Well, you still look at the ratio of male-to-female characters they're showing. It's incredibly lopsided. Mm-hmm. I, when uh, they revealed first who a lot of the actors had been cast in the film, uh, a lot of people reacted as like, okay, you got this whole lineup and there's one woman in that whole lineup. Out of the new characters, and so one of the char- one of the characters, uh, a fa- I don't know if they're pronouncing it Phasma or Phasma. I've just read the word, and they and they decided, oh, you know what, we can make that character female, and they cast an actress from Game of Thrones in the in the role, and that worked. So it is still extremely lopsided in the gender ratio, and yeah, you can make some things artificial if if you're being too structured. with Let's make sure to balance it too carefully you know when it gets too obvious when you know you have this this photo of six children half of them are female half of them are male and all six are different races you know what they did that doesn't mean it's a bad thing though it's still good to have people represented you know you, you sometimes you have to do these things that are a little heavy-handed you know to lead to the point where you don't have to think about these as much
0: it kind of makes me think of of that idea of the uncanny valley where they yeah make um where they make uh Um, androids essentially like too human and we'd start to get creeped out by it as human beings that they have to retain some sort of robotic qualities to it for us to understand that it's artificial it's almost as though it's a similar thing that you can tell when it's being artificially made to be diverse and then you start to get your your you know your rankles up about it
1: yeah now chris i always have to throw out uh, the Uncanny Valley, there's conflicting evidence on that, but there's a theme there. There is a basic pattern that resonates with us where if, if something gets a bit too close to being human without quite being there, it's creepy. Like some of those uh, you know, animatronic you know, life dolls, they're, they're, they're creepy to a lot of individuals because they're so close to being human beings but clearly not there that if they were a little further away at something that makes them a little less humanoid, a little less person-like – And and we can relate to them more comfortably. Droids throughout Star Wars. You know, C-3PO is very very human-shaped, but, you know, not a human face. You know, he's moved further away. He's in the realm of the valley where, okay, we're feeling good about it. It hasn't moved into that creepy, uncanny, so close to human that this is disturbing.
0: And so, speaking of that, why do audiences tend to, uh, I guess... It's easy to anthropomorphize R two D two and C three PO because they are given traits pretty clearly that help us to anthropomorphize them. But why right. do we do that with them, and then turn around and dehumanize
1: the stormtroopers? Well, the the storm a bunch of reasons. One, the stormtroopers all look the same. Mm-hmm. They all sound the same. They they act the same as far as we can see. They're not given these individual varieties in their their presentation. I it's pretty clear that Force Awakens is going to get into the fact that there's a variety in Stormtroopers. Of course, we know for the earlier generation they were all clones, but by the time of a new hope and onward they might not all be clones anymore it's like you know they can't afford to produce a bunch of clones the empire is getting a bit run down let's just hire anybody from all over the place that would be why they don't all shoot as accurately as jango fett anymore (laughs) ben kenobi he makes this comment well only a stormtrooper would shoot that accurately well ben hasn't been around stormtroopers in a whole generation he doesn't know they're not accurate anymore
0: right (laughs) But so there's some uniformity still though because Leia yeah. of course notes to Luke that he's short for a stormtrooper.
1: Mm-hmm. And you know, episode 7 I think they're going to be getting that with the variety, but yeah, there's this uniformity in presentation, there's this dehumanization. They're not given some of the qualities that will, you know, make us feel better. Like you know, are the eyes on the stormtrooper outfit aren't as round as on C-3PO or that, that little lens on R2-D2 that serves to look eye-like. And those round eyes are more childlike to us. The, the mm. shape of the eye on the Stormtrooper gets further away from what's cute to us. So all sorts of aspects uh, of the production design and presentation of these characters fall into why you know, we we personalize you know these droids and not the stormtroopers, or why we personalize these droids and not the battle droids. Those battle droids all look the same. They act the same as, as much as we can see. And so we don't care as much as they're getting blown away. It's like, they're droids just as much as R2, D2, and C3PO, but we don't care
0: hmm I was hoping you would get into that, too. Thank you. And I find that fascinating, too, when you talk about production design and costume design. And that's essentially what we're talking about when you you know, talk about how the Stormtrooper helmets look, for example, and how the shape of the eyes are different, say, from the shape of R2-D2s or C-3PO's eyes. And that suggests something really remarkable about the creative enterprise of making a Star Wars film and of making a Star Wars saga in general that... It isn't just Lucas or J.J. Abrams now who have the vision for what it needs to be and how to communicate the psychology of it and the mythos of it. It's also all of these artisans and craftspeople who have to execute these visions. The um, you know the concept artists who have to come up with these ideas. They're all carrying around similar ideas in this. They all have to be you know vetted to work within this universe and have a similar idea. Correct
1: what will fit together and I, I know they'll have lots and lots of discussion on what design works, what fits, you know, what does not go into into what vision they're trying to do and sometimes it's intuitive where they don't necessarily even realize why, yeah, that works for what we're trying to do uh, sometimes it is very specifically constructed, you know, with the, the stormtroopers, they're, they're deliberately modeled you know, a- after you know Nazi uniforms, oh, well, not the stormtroopers but the other imperial soldiers mm-hmm. uh, well, the stormtroopers in their manner, they're, they're meant to have this goose-stepping sound as they're clomping along they're not lifting their legs up that way but there's this sound to them that gives you a sense of it, you know, and and other things, you know, in those designs, you know, where C-3PO has a fully human, you know, shaped head, the Stormtrooper head is not shaped the same way.
0: Mm, That's true.
1: All these things that keep going in, you know, there are reasons why, I mean, I love Star Trek too, but I've got a whole lot more Star Wars stuff sitting around my office than Star Trek.
0: (laughs) Well, you've been a fan of it for quite a long time. Were you a fan of Star Wars? I mean, you write about about seeing it for the first time in the book. Were you a fan of Star Wars, well, and before Star Trek, even though Star Trek came along earlier?
1: As, well, I mean, I knew Star Trek before Star Wars. You know, I had seen it, although uh, I went a long time without getting to see it because it wasn't in reruns where I left. But you know, I had seen Star Trek already, so. You know, in and of itself, you can't quite judge it the same way. It's just something different. I don't remember discovering Star Trek. Mm-hmm. I remember discovering Star Wars Chris the generation now they've grown up with both being there, especially star wars for for younger individuals they you know they would watch you know a Clone Wars or other animated series in a way that you know they wouldn't be as ready to watch a star trek TV series
0: so in a way would you say that the original Star Wars movie for a certain generation of fans was sort of an unexpected
1: rite of passage? That's a good way to put it. it, it although you didn't realize at the time, it was like this this film that you saw. But for many, it, it did excite us or change and make people conscious of different things and what it was going together in your own life. And it was it was a phenomenon. This series of films telling one story over three films... That had never been done before. It, it was a new thing. It was this. It was this worldwide communal experience as we're caring about these characters. You know, there have been movies with sequels. You know, but *Bride of Frankenstein* was not constructed to be one flowing story and one chapter. You know, leading into what third, *Son of Frankenstein*. I was thinking, which one's third? Yeah, you know, it's like you know, those don't. Each builds on the other, but the *Star Wars* films. There's this vision, and and some of it really is getting t- tagged on after the fact. Is like, okay, now what are we what are we going to do next? And some of these things they are scrambling to figure out, like the bit with Leia being Luke's sister was not decided at the very beginning. You know, that was decided further along in the process. Mm-hmm. But but the bigger vision of where they can go eventually, you know, a, a resolution, you know, between you the father and the son, the reconciliation with the father, Jungian hero's journey kind of thing. You know, He would love to be able to get to that point in the story. He did have the vision of getting there. He realized you couldn't fit all that in one movie. So there was a big vision, and for those of us watching it, from 1977 to 1983, we saw this story play out over that six-year period, and and nothing had ever done that before.
0: And uh, to get uh, away from Jung for a minute and over to Freud. It's funny you mentioned that because I interviewed my own mother for the podcast here, and that was her <laughs> same reasoning for why it had such an incredible cultural impact, that nothing had yeah. been like that. She had the same yeah. insight about the, about the three movies stretched out. And then, to extend that metaphor, strangely enough, my wife came up with that independently on her own, thinking about it, too.
1: Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's When I sign the books, my favorite way to sign it is May the Freud Be With You, even though in the entire book there's only one passing mention of Freud. Uh, I've got more Freud in The Walking Dead book and more in some of the others, but in the, in the Star Wars book, there's only one mention, brief mention of Freud in the entire book. Mm-hmm. And, and so they go, how can you not get into this, like your edible things with Luke and Darth? It's like that's that's not where we went. That's not the thing. Also, plenty of other people have talked about that. We're trying, and and of course, people have talked about the Jungian stuff. You have to have Jung in there right. because of how it influenced things. But you know, when you go with something like Freud and there's, oh, this edible thing with Luke and Darth, and and and, and yeah, you can do it. Uh, that's just you know, plenty of people have said that. So I just didn't feel like. We needed to go there. If if one of the writers had wanted to to do that, and right now I'm feeling like, oh, I want to write the chapter now. But uh, (laughs) I'm I'm not a Jungian. I I had other things I wanted to say. I wanted to talk about the meaning of good and evil. You know, that was some of the stuff. And I wanted to talk about that ocean. Those were the things I wanted to get into. And then my writers, with the different things they wanted to talk about, how does it all fit together?
0: And it sort of becomes a cross-disciplinary thing, anyway. It doesn't neatly fit into Freudian or Jungian or anything like that.
1: I think that's the appeal of, of any of these things we're looking at, Star Wars and the other topics, is they've got this appeal that goes across. It doesn't have to be just one area of psychology. You know, I, technically, this is the second book on the psychology of Star Wars, but – the first one was strictly Jungian, and a long time ago.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: the Journey of Luke Skywalker, something like that is the title. Okay. And, 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 and I have it. I read it a long time ago, but then I did not pick it up the entire time we were working on this stuff, because I didn't want to be directly influenced by it. Right. I wanted to have our own things to say. Uh, in terms of going beyond just one area of psychology, the obvious one, this is the first book to do that with Star Wars.
0: And we are very grateful that you pulled it together and you've been tremendously generous with your time. I'm very appreciative of it and I know our audience is appreciative of it too. And for those listening who are not yet familiar with you or your work, where can they go to find you online and learn more about Star Wars psychology, the dark side of the mind? Of course, we will be posting all the information about it at the blog post for the show's episode at SW7x7.com. But for anyone who's listening that you want to share it with, where should they go, doctor?
1: Well, of course the books themselves are all over the place online, Barnes and Noble, Amazon. But to, to find me, uh, you could f- go through Facebook or Twitter, usually. Although I'm off social media until after I watch The Force Awakens. But uh, <laughs> oh, oh, I am! It's uh, the last that you go to my Facebook or Twitter page. Twitter at superherologist, and the last thing on there is this picture from The Force Awakens, which says "Off social media until I see The Force Awakens." <laughs> but but uh, or on Facebook, look for Doctor Travis Langley.
0: And what are your plans for seeing The Force Awakens? Have you do you already have tickets yet?
1: I don't need tickets. Oh! I, I just just like it's like this, this. These are not the tickets you're looking for. in entry, you see? No, uh, no, no, no. Uh, one of the the local movie theaters. Um, the owners will let me see it. Oh! That's... I'm not going to see it early. I don't want to see it early. Uh, but i want to make sure i see it quickly because i i really i've had opportunities to see some of these things early and even though i risk spoilers by waiting i want to see it when everybody else sees it i want to see it and be part of that experience of discovery when it happens i don't want to know this stuff early and have it burning in me when i can't talk about it yet <laughs>
0: Well, thank you again, Dr. Travis Langley. Thank you so much for your time and congratulations on the publication of the book and for essentially fulfilling the dream of it too because it was something that was within you for such a long time. Um, Very thrilled for you and for the book. And uh, again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And that's that for our interview with Dr. Travis Langley, the editor of Star Wars Psychology, Dark Side of the Mind. Stay tuned after the break and we'll tell you a little bit more about the book itself hey rebel rouser if you've got a business that you need to get in front of a bunch of star wars fans then i've got an idea for you i'm looking for a sponsor to get the entire star wars 7x7 team over to london for star wars celebration europe next july and we get a ton of exposure when we do star wars celebration podcasts not just the regular episodes but the bonus stuff and all the in-person stuff too not to mention all the live streaming video we do So, if that's something of interest to you, then reach out via the contact form at sw7x7.com and let's talk. All right, we're back, and thank you again so much for staying with us for the Star Wars 7x7 podcast on this extended bonus episode. So there are nearly two dozen essays in this book, and they're written by a combination of professional psychologists and also by folks that are well-known in the fan community, including the head of the Legion of Leia, Jenna Bush, and also there are a couple of very deeply personal small stories from Brian Young from Big Shiny Robot, who's also a regular contributor to Full of Sith, and also StarWars.com. And the essays run the gamut, too. I mean, there's things about uh, amputation, neuroprosthetics, and Darth Vader's brain. There's a thing about uh, learning the ways of the Force through acceptance and commitment therapy. That's a a so-you-want-to-be-a-Jedi thing. Um, droids, minds, and why we care, looking at the whole thing that we talked about actually in the interview about why we care about R2, but dehumanize things like stormtroopers, for example. Things like stormtroopers, listen to me. (laughs) Archetypal stuff is here also. Um, Leia's heroic journey is part of this. Why good people do bad things. Um, There's also a great chapter, Lando's Choice, The Anatomy of a Moral Dilemma, (laughs) about his whole story in The Empire Strikes Back, which I think is probably one of my favorites of the whole thing. Anyway... Definitely, if you are not into psychology per se, or at least you think you're not into psychology, well the fact of the matter is, is that you probably love Star Wars if you're listening to this podcast, and it's absolutely worth a read to check this out. You will learn stuff about psychology, you will learn stuff about the characters in the Star Wars movies that you didn't necessarily realize, but... You will be surprised and enlightened, I think. I certainly was. I had a great time reading it, and I hope you check it out. Anyway, thank you again for joining us for this bonus extended episode, and hang in there, folks. We've only got a few days to The Force Awakens. Thanks for listening to another episode of Star Wars 7x7. And hey, before your scopes go dead and you start the landing cycle, check out SW7x7.com for show notes, links, photos, videos, and more and we'd be spectacularly grateful if you put a little something in the tip jar at patreon.com SW7X7. It's not a slimy mud hole. It's destiny unleashed.
1: This podcast is not endorsed or sponsored yet by Lucasfilm Limited, Disney, or 20th Century Fox,
0: and is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, and all names and pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars-related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Lucasfilm Limited or their respective trademark and copyright holders. May the Force be with them. All original content is copyright 2015 by Star Wars 7 7 We hope you love it!